We are starting, though, talking about an announcement made just a short time ago. This has to do with declaring a national holiday to mark Queen Elizabeth's death, and specifically on Monday the 19th. We have uh, also uh, chosen to move forward uh, with uh, a uh, federal holiday uh, on Monday. We will be working with the provinces uh, and uh, the uh, territories uh, to try and see that we're aligned on this. There are still uh, a few details to be worked out, uh, but uh, uh, declaring an opportunity for Canadians to mourn uh, on Monday uh, is going to be important. So uh, for our part, we will be uh, um, uh, letting uh, federal employees know uh, that Monday will be a day of mourning where they will not work. All right, that was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, again, just a short time ago, announcing that. Joining us now is Global BC legislative reporter Richard Sussman. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. So he didn't sound overly confident there in that answer and said even in declaring the federal holiday that he was still working with the provinces and territories about what exactly that's going to look like. We've heard from Quebec, they're not going along with this. So what's going to be happening or do we know what's going to be happening in B.C.? We don't. And my understanding is that Premier John Horgan is still in meetings today to determine what will be done here in the province uh, on Monday. Uh, We know that this policy means that anyone who works for the federal government will have the day off. But that does not include uh, businesses that are regulated by the federal government. So, you know, there's still a lot of details to be worked out because obviously the big question is, will it include schools? Will it include uh, businesses here in the province? So there are a lot of questions still. And I would imagine anybody in that scenario, if you own a business or if you've got kids in school and you're not in one of those jobs where you would get the day off, there's a lot of people wondering right now, well, what exactly is it going to look like on Monday? Yeah, I would expect that we will get those details at some point today, potentially tomorrow, because clearly people need to plan here. And we've already heard from the CFIB, uh, both in British Columbia and federally, saying you know, this is hugely disruptive to business. It would also be hugely disruptive to families who are trying to, to figure out that if they're required to go to work, but the schools are out, what are they going to do with such short notice? And so the province is grappling with all of that. My understanding is um, at one point, the federal government suggested to the provinces that Monday be a statutory holiday. That would have required substantial legislative changes it also would have required, uh, you know, the provinces to adjust very quickly to a number of people that would be required to have the day off. So that is not the way the federal government decided to go. And now the provinces have choices here. And it would be surprising to me to expect to have a day off on Monday if you live in British Columbia. But that determination hasn't been made yet. It would also be in again, not to be disrespectful. I know there are a lot of people that will be tuning in to either listen or watch the funeral on Monday and to mourn and pay respects to the Queen. But it would also mean, wouldn't it, that if everybody gets the 19th off as well, that makes three, even though it's not technically a statutory holiday, it would make three stats kind of in the month of September. Yeah, and, and again, this is not a stat, but and you pointed that out, it is a holiday. But if we're now in a situation where 
parents and families and businesses are scrambling to make decisions uh, on short notice multiple times in the month, it becomes really challenging. And a lot of parents have gone through the last week staggered restarts to school. Uh, either they only had half days or either in the morning or the afternoon, or some days their kids weren't in school. It becomes really challenging for parents who are also business owners and who are also, you know, workers and all this thing to sort of make this go in this province. So, the, the province is balancing all of those things. It's also important to note that the funeral starts extremely early BC time, and there aren't a lot of people who, in that workday, will have the opportunity unless you record it to watch the funeral. I also understand there will be some BC specific things that are being worked on. We're expecting details on that at some point later this week, where there could be opportunities here in the province for people to mourn the Queen's passing, uh, but those are, details aren't quite available just yet. Do you mean like places for people to go or certain certain yeah. times that people can gather? Yeah, and there could even be an event, Jill. I think through the Commonwealth, communities, provinces, uh, federal governments are working on uh, potential uh, funerals that look similar to the, to the UK done at different times where there could be processions and you could hear representatives of the Crown speak in places like Victoria, potentially. These are all sort of part of the details that are now being worked out. We still don't have all those details on what that could look like, but there is work being done to ensure that those that want to mourn uh, publicly will have an opportunity to do so. But again, we're, we're in the early stages of that. I know we're running out of time, but this is a huge endeavor that they're, they're working through the processing of that now. And Richard, the UBCM is on the Union of BC Municipalities. So presumably a lot of the people who maybe are making the decisions or who are yeah. involved in this are already all gathered in one place. Yeah, so the Premier is at a Cascadia conference today in Vancouver. He'll be heading up to Whistler at some point. Uh, I'm at UBCM right now. I just arrived, and I'm hoping to speak uh, to the head of UBCM around what the expectation will be for municipalities, because municipalities will have a role here, too, to work with the province around whatever holiday we may see. So, yes, uh, you know, ministers are all here. The Premier will arrive soon, uh, and that allows them to sort of be in one place to help make some of these decisions. All right, Richard, as always, thank you so much. Look forward to updates on this, but thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Well, we first learned about Mayan Ziv's trip from hell, you could say. She was flying to Tel Aviv for a conference. It was actually an accessibility conference. But when she got there and got her electric wheelchair, which she had to check in, uh, you check it kind of as luggage, and she had bubble-wrapped it and protected it as best she could. When she got it back on the other end of the flight, it was so broken, she couldn't even use it. And this is something that she depends on to get around. Here's just a little bit about or from our conversation with Mayan. I can take my personalized mobility device on any other mode of transportation. And recently in the U.S., they did pass a bill of rights that looks specifically at addressing this major barrier that prevents people with disabilities from flying uh, with their own wheelchairs or other devices. Uh, and, And one of the reasons Um, that, you know, this is so devastating is because we know that there are other solutions, but there's just so much negligence here. Um, Such a lack of um, genuine care is what it feels like to actually address this systemic issue across the entire transportation uh, industry when it comes to airline travel for people with disabilities. 
So joining us now to talk more about this is Carla Qualtro, the Minister of Employment, Workforce Development, as well as Disability Inclusion, also an MP for Delta. Minister Qualtro, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. We've been getting a lot of feedback about this story. And since we spoke with Mayan Ziv last week, she's the Canadian woman. She arrived in Tel Aviv for an accessibility conference only to find that her electric wheelchair, which she depends on for mobility, had been very damaged during the flight. She talked to us about how upset she was, not only that this happened, but also with the response she was getting from the airport and with this, what she really talked about, a lack of understanding just how important that device was for her and is for people that use electric wheelchairs. What was your response when you first saw this story? Well, first of all, unfortunately, Jill, as much as I'd like to think this is um, a single incident, we've, you know, we know that these incidents happen on more, more regularly than anybody would consider appropriate. The lack of care, um, the lack of dignity being afforded to persons with disabilities, and quite frankly, the lack of accountability and kind of corrective action on on the part of airlines. Um, As someone with a disability who travels extensively, I know the extent to which passengers with disabilities try to avoid this stuff. We get to the airports early, we file our papers, we tell people about our batteries on our wheelchairs, we, we give them the dimensions of our devices because it's so important that when we get off the plane, it's waiting there and we can use it because as you said, this isn't just a piece of luggage. This isn't just, I've lost my toiletries. This is, I've lost my independence, my dignity, my legs kind of, you know, if if you give somebody your legs when you get on the plane and you say, take good care of them, I'm going to need them when I get off. And then they're not there. Like my aunt was stuck. People are stuck and vulnerable and, and traumatized. What do you think could be changed then to improve this in that? I I think, I mean, we've all had things damaged, I think, obviously not to this extent. And it's not a big deal. If my luggage is damaged, if something's damaged, you you move on, you can deal with it. Like you said, though, this is like uh, your legs. This is this is what. Mayan needs. This is what so many people need to get around. Uh, we understand there's batteries, there's issues of space and weight that that perhaps these devices, they can't be in the cabin. Uh, but should there be better protocols or better rules as far as exactly where they are stored and how they are stored during flights? Yeah, it's absolutely a need to make sure we've got the proper rules and guidance and, and training in place. But to be honest, a lot of, of, of airlines and even the, the, the Canadian Transportation Agency have these, these rules and regulations and guides in place. But that's not translating into an inclusive experience for people. So there's a disconnect between what's on paper and what people are experiencing. So, um, you know, maybe it's a matter of needing to train air, air, airline and airport staff um, to treat people with dignity. And I'm not blaming any one person on this. This is a systemic, long-standing issue. It's why transportation made its way into the Accessible Canada Act as a priority. And um, we've been trying kind of as a disability community to differentiate kind of luggage from essential goods. So, you know, maybe there is a designated place in airline storage for these are fragile, you know, expensive pieces of equipment that, that we really need to figure out how to transfer safely. And when this does happen, we need to make it a seamless experience on the other side, right? Sometimes you're told, you know, we don't have a wheelchair available for you and people just are made to sit while they're wondering where, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to get to my work? How am I going to it's just, it's so frustrating. And I, and I share that frustration. 
Uh, Mayan also talked about the fact that the, there are other airlines, she said, that have made improvements that are better. Uh, but she also talked about the fact that when it was became clear to her that her wheelchair was very damaged, and she said she was able to kind of hobble around and use it, but but for very short distances and, and certainly not in, in the way that she needs that wheelchair. Uh, then she said she was offered a $300 e-coupon from Air Canada and that she was upset as well by, she felt like it was being dismissed, like they, they weren't acknowledging exactly how important this is. And you've kind of touched on that, but does there also need to be uh, something in place that this is a, a $30,000 piece of vital equipment? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the exact kind of conversation I'm going to be having. So I'll be meeting with the airlines. I'm meeting with the Canada a Transportation Agency to have those. It's like a sensitivity and awareness piece that we need to also build into um, our processes to have people really, you know, at, at a deep level understand what's at stake here, what this is that this is about. This is also about confidence. Like I need to be, if I have a right to travel and I, and I need to get somewhere to see my family, to do my job, like, I need to have the confidence that that this is going to work out. Like, everybody experiences anxiety, you know, especially right now as we head into airports or airplanes. But imagine, like, 10 times in that if you don't know you're going to be able to get off, you know, or if somebody drops you. You know, there's been recent instances where airline um, equipment that helps move passengers haven't been available. And so people have carried passengers and then they drop people. Could you imagine being dropped in the middle of... Uh, on an airplane and not being able to just stand up and dust yourself off. You're just sitting there. Like it's, it's a, maybe you're injured. Maybe you're just incredibly horrifically embarrassed, but the dignity is just not present. Uh, No, absolutely. Uh, Do you know if we keep the statistics or we know the numbers? Uh, When we talked to Mayan about this, we were able to get numbers from the U.S. Department of Transportation as far as the number of wheelchairs and electric scooters that had been damaged or mishandled by American Airlines. The number, I thought, seemed quite high. It was was around 1,145 just in the month of June. Uh, But we don't have those numbers in Canada. Should we be keeping those numbers in Canada to to see if this is, in fact, a problem? It's an excellent idea. Yeah, what, what we what we compile is complaints to the CTA by passengers who have had these kinds of experiences. So how many complaints against a particular airline? Um, but, you know, that kind of data would be really helpful. And it's an excellent, I'm going to add that to my list of things I'm going to ask for, because it's the exact kind of information we need um, to paint the bigger picture of what people are experiencing. And not just, um, you know, on the passenger, on the kind of customer service side, it's also passengers who are blind and visually impaired who are often forgotten. Don't worry, ma'am, we're going to come back and we'll guide you off the plane. And then everybody gets off the plane and people go about their business. And it's the, it's the individual who's come on to clean the plane that realizes that that person is still sitting there, right? Like it's, it's not just, it's, I mean, this is the, the mobility aid piece is very uh, immediate. It's an immediate consequence of poor treatment, but there are other kind of behaviors that, that leave many, many people with disabilities vulnerable to being poorly treated. Absolutely. And this is kind of related to that, not specifically to airlines and equipment. But I'm also curious about the Canada Disability Benefit, the bill that was introduced in June. Uh, Will that get passed, do you think, or will there be more discussion on that coming up in the fall sitting? 
Well, it's definitely a priority for our government, and thank you for asking about it, because it's such an important piece of law, um, such an important um, hole that currently exists in our social safety net for kind of working-age persons with disabilities. But, yes, it's absolutely a priority for our government this fall. In the meantime, we're working on negotiating with provinces and territories to really understand interaction of this benefit, which will be modeled after the GICS, sorry. So about 23% of persons with this, uh, Canadians have a disability. Um, one in four Canadians uh, with a disability who are between the ages of 19 and 64 live in poverty. And this is what this benefit is meant to address, is to lift potentially hundreds of thousands of people out of poverty. And yes, it's, it's an absolute priority for our government. Uh, because I would imagine, too, that we're, today we're talking about affordability. Uh, we've seen the announcement that came from the Prime Minister, uh, but certainly uh, affordability is one thing and and a whole other thing if you are in that group, as you just mentioned, of people with disabilities who are living in poverty. Yeah, there's no wiggle room. If, if, I, if I have to pay more for my gallon of milk, I maybe not, I can't buy the milk. Like, there's no... There's just no wiggle room when you're living on a fixed income, you know, dependent on, uh, for the most part, provincial government support. Um, you're unemployed because people have discriminated against you when you've sought employment. There's just countless barriers that people are facing to living um, in dignity. And that's this for me, the CDB is, is part of the solution. Um, and it's an excellent first start. All right, uh, Minister, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much. I know uh, you're busy at the retreat, so thank you so much for making the time today. My pleasure, Dylan. Thank you for, this is a super important issue, and I really appreciate the, the thought that you've put into addressing it. Thanks for being with us. Well, we've talked a bit, although not all that much on this show, but we have talked a bit about this new idea of quiet quitting, basically doing the bare minimum, not really telling anybody that's what you're doing, but doing enough that you can hopefully stay employed, but kind of the opposite of going above and beyond. So that's quiet quitting. But what is overemployed? It seems more and more people, whether it's to make ends meet, whether it's because you can get away with it because you're at home, perhaps working, more and more people are now falling under this title of overemployed, working a couple of jobs and in a lot of cases working two full-time jobs. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Leah Moody, an employment lawyer and partner at Simfiru Tamarkin, LLP. Leah, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be here, Jill. Thanks for having me. I I didn't realize that this was uh, trending or this was something uh, that is happening, but there are even websites dedicated to this on on how to get away with it, how to best uh, split up your time to do this. Uh, What are your thoughts on on people that are now finding themselves or trying to be overemployed by having two full-time jobs? Honestly, Jill, I had no idea it was a thing either until this morning uh, when I was asked to come on your show um, it's what a world we're living in that this is the problem um, and what a fortunate thing that we can even have overemployment in our vernacular at this point. Um, but, you know, it initially sort of caused some concerns for me as somebody who works predominantly with employees. Uh, far be it for me to tell somebody, you know, don't work when you need to work. But to the extent that people are trying to do it to, as you put it, get away with it. You know, they're working from home and they're trying to do two jobs at once or, you know, taking advantage of the fact that they're not being monitored. I would have some real concerns that um, taking on too much with different companies can cause you to be legally characterized as a contractor. And the problem with that is that if you're legally characterized as a contractor, 
versus an employee, then you have none of the statutory protections under the Employment Standards Act. So nobody, they don't have to pay you minimum wage. They don't have to give you vacation pay. That holidays are out the window. And most importantly, you're not protected by the severance pay provisions. And, and so how would companies or how would people know or companies know in that part of this is, is the getting away with it part is you might be a full-time employee with one company and then you're doing a completely other full-time job with another company. Is it because you couldn't be a full-time, job, a full-time employee with both without some kind of alarm bells going off? Yeah, I'm I'm hard-pressed to believe that somebody can get away with it for a particularly long period of time. I mean, you'd have to imagine that through all the trackers that various employers have introduced throughout the pandemic, there's going to be some way of monitoring somebody's attention. But the, the opposite viewpoint on that, though, is that if somebody is doing all of the work, right, if somebody is working remotely and doing all of the work that's required of them in their full-time position, most employers probably aren't going to look behind that curtain because there isn't really anything that's causing any concern. Um, my main concern with respect to people who are working two full-time jobs or even a full-time job and a part-time job is what we had discussed earlier about being characterized as a contractor. But a lot of contracts, and by contracts, I mean it could be in an offer letter. It could be in the email that initially was sent to you when, you're, when employment was offered to you. That could set out very clearly that they want you to spend your full time and attention with that job. And if you are found to be spending your time and attention and energy elsewhere, that could actually potentially give rise for that employer to terminate you for cause because you've now breached the contract and then you're out of 50% of your employment. Hmm. And would it matter, do you think, that the type of work in that if you were doing a full-time job with one employer... And then you were doing very similar work, say, with another employer, as opposed to, say, you've got a tech job that you do from home during the day or in the office during the day, and you bartend a few days a week or in the evenings. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think that for the purposes of anybody who has a contract or an offer of employment that requires them to spend their full time and energy on the job, it's not going to matter how similar or dissimilar the two jobs are. But if you are somebody who's in a position of trust, um, what we would call uh, legally somebody who's in a fiduciary position, so somebody who usually has some sort of control and agency over the affairs of the company, so manager-type position, um, then you might be held to a higher standard. So even without a contractual we were talking about, working a couple of shifts at a bar might be completely fine. But if you've got a second job, at a competitor, that would raise a very serious issue for sure. Right. And, and what about if you made the argument, and it would be different, obviously, if you were a senior employee or somebody uh, in one of those roles, like you're mentioning, where you are in a position, maybe you have sensitive information or you're privy to that, uh, as opposed to, say, a more junior uh, associate or junior employee, and the argument being, I need to have this second job. It's the only way I can pay my bills. Well, exactly. I mean, I think that we're talking about this concept of overemployment as though it's a it's a new term and almost as though it's, you know, for people who have relatively good jobs who just want to break in some extra cash. But the, the reality is that there's a, there's a pretty considerable contingent of our population, particularly in Vancouver, um, who are who have to work multiple jobs. And my experience with people who are in that position is that even with a contractual provision that says 
you have to devote your full time and energy. Most employers, most companies are, are completely understanding of people who are in that situation. Again, as long as you're doing the work that that company needs from you, why would they care? Right. And why would they even be be looking at that unless somebody walked in and at your other place of employment and didn't expect to see you there or somehow found out about it if you were doing your job to the satisfaction to what they wanted? Exactly. It's really hard to imagine an employer having a real problem with it if it doesn't detract from the work that you're doing. And so I think that really is the takeaway is that if you are somebody who either wants to or has to work multiple jobs, and you can pull it off such that you're performing your duties for both for both jobs and all the power to you, in my view. But what if you are then, to flip that around, if, say, your employer has noticed that eh, your work hasn't been the greatest lately, or maybe since you started working from home, you haven't been as productive, and then they find out that, well, actually, you've had a side hustle or you've had a whole other full-time job going on. So working another job is not in and of itself going to give the employer grounds to terminate you for cause. I mean, terminate you without giving you any severance, walking you out the door with, with your banker's box and a pink slip. Um, but if you are somebody who has one of these contractual provisions, if you're in a senior role, um, if you're working for a competitor, that could give your employer grounds to terminate you immediately. Uh, for for breach of contract uh, or for you know not devoting your full time and resources to the company. So I think people who have any sort of contract that requires that says anything about where they need to devote their time and energy need to be particularly careful. All right. And Leah, I know I'm throwing all of these topics at you that are kind of new and we haven't been talking about them a lot, but I was curious as well, your thoughts, and we're starting to get a bit of clarification on the federal holiday that was announced for September 19th or the national holiday. Uh, As far as what we know at this point is that it's for federal employees, not federally regulated employees. We know Quebec and Ontario have announced they are not going to be declaring a holiday in those provinces. We're still waiting for BC. What do employees need to know or what should we be waiting for here? Uh, What John Horgan does. Um, Let's see what the province does in terms of implementing following suit uh, it, with making a, hol- a provincial holiday, which would give, um, which would make it a, a day off in, in BC. But for the time being, until the province uh, enacts something similar to the federal government, uh, it's going to be a regular day for everybody except for uh, federal, the employees of the federal government specifically. All right. Leah, thank you so much. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Joe. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, my next guest is talking about the need to have a conversation about ageism and also defining more what exactly ageism is and how much we see it in our day-to-day lives and maybe don't even recognize it some of the times. Dan Levitt joins me now, the CEO at Kin Village in South Delta. Dan, thanks so much for being back on the show with us. Hi, Jill. Great to be here. It was a really interesting uh, conversation to be having. You've written an opinion piece about this. What was it that prompted you to write about this and to raise more awareness about ageism? Well, I think the whole situation around a news anchor um, apparently losing her job 
for the color of her hair and the public discourse that um, was generated afterwards and um, kind of pointing fingers. And when I started to think about it and started to, to hear people talk about it, what I heard a lot about was you know, our own responsibility as Canadians and as a, as a society around um, how do we make our cities, our, our lives more age-friendly, both from, if you will, the beginning of um, our lives, especially when we're entering the workforce, and also um, as um, older persons. How can we make our society better? And so I think I wanted to really put a spotlight on some of the salient points around ageism. Interesting. And and the case we're talking about uh, with, with Lisa Laflamme, uh, even if we don't know exactly what it was that led to the firing, it certainly has started the conversation of there are many examples of women in media or women in, in positions of power being treated differently than their male counterparts. So it did get that conversation going, certainly. Uh, how would you define, though, if we're defining ageism and talking about it, can you give us a bit of the background? Sure. So the term was was coined in 1969 by uh, Robert Butler, who was, uh, who was a psychiatrist, a gerontologist, and founding director of the National Institutes on Aging. And he described discrimination against older persons as ageism. So it's the way we think. Those are stereotypes. It's how we feel, which are prejudices, and it's discrimination, which is how we act. And the World Health Organization has adopted that definition, and that really is that when we talk about that term ageism, we're referring to just that, treating other people differently based on their age. And it is a protected um, group um, in the Human Rights Code in Canada. So it is something that, you know, the legislation's there. I think now it's up to us to make sure that no one's treated differently based on the year they were born. And when we think about ageism, I think we tend to think about people that are older and being the subject or being the target of ageism. But as you write in the piece as well, it's also younger people. It it can be something that is targeted at people of many different ages. Yeah, exactly. And um, we do this almost as by nature. We kind of look at somebody and try to figure out um, the the age they were born, the decade they were born, what kind of generational group they belong to. But as a a colleague of mine, Ashton Applewhite, who wrote a book about this whole topic, kind of a manifesto on on, uh, stopping ageism, um, what she writes about is she says, um, if you've met one 80-year-old, you've met one 80-year-old. And actually, people are more divergent, that we become more different as we age. So younger people, they also are, they report more discrimination based on their age than older age groups, especially in the workplace, that that um, growth potential that's limited when you get into um, the workforce. And um, in speaking with people in, um, who work in some private firms um, in different sectors of, of the workforce, um, some people might be a partner of a firm. And um, at 65, that particular firm will say, you must retire. You can no longer be a partner of the firm. And uh, they're allowed to do that because it's a private company. But really, that doesn't, it's not in the spirit of um, our, um, in, in British Columbia, for example, we do have legislation that uh, prohibits discrimination in the workplace um, being mandatory retirement. So we do need to think about how we value people at the beginning of their careers and at the end of their careers also. Do you think, is it possible that ageism also gets a bit of a buy or that we're more um, open to let it go or, or don't call it out? Because oftentimes we'll see people making fun of themselves or drawing attention uh, to themselves, whether it's uh, at a birthday or, or in a group, uh, say at a, at a meeting when, and, and sharing stories. And that it's something where if you see somebody poking fun of themselves, you maybe don't think that it's, that it's something that's all that serious or you might think it's okay. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think there's nothing funny about ageism. It's something we shouldn't be joking about. We wouldn't be joking about another protected group in the Human Rights Code, or we, I believe we shouldn't be, but somehow it is kind of socially acceptable, and it's it's hard to call them out. So you know, one thing you can do, I think, which is helpful, is to call the person in a private comment about uh, what they said and perhaps um, a different way of framing the issue. I mean, there are some things, um, even people say, well, we'll say a term like... Uh, a senior moment, and uh, you know, I might. My response might be, well, my, you know, our daughters they don't say they're having a junior moment when they lose their keys. That might be helpful to kind of poke um, um, a, uh, a ripple in what they're saying. But really, we shouldn't be saying those things based on someone's age. Do you find too? Is it possible that that there's not enough awareness about this, or, or there are situations, obviously, when people will know that they're doing that, but also situations when people don't realize that maybe what they're saying is ageist or or such. And one of the ones that that stuck out for me, and I think this was from from spending time uh, visiting in long term care facilities, was when you would hear people reference or saying that the the residents in some cases were like children, and that one mm-hmm. always kind of drove me a bit because they aren't. They're they're adults and they've lived full lives and they've got wisdom and that they're not like children at all but but the person wasn't saying it to be mean or or to be to be discriminatory but it's just not correct a hundred percent joel i think that's something that we we we're we're not sure how to deal with this because i think we're afraid of our own ageism that's um our own aging that's uh, gerontophobia and we're afraid of of growing old um and um so when we think about um of this around somebody perhaps appearing like they are they're a child um that's not a a right thing to say and we should be treating them like an adult who's had a full life and uh, not treat them like a child how much is it do you think also what we see and and experience around us in that how uh, people say 65 even 75 plus are portrayed in movies and tv shows and things like that yeah, I think the the media, and we like to do, you know, we like to point fingers at different groups for being responsible for this. But again, I think the media is just um, you know, Hollywood is just representing perhaps what the audience is is expecting and what they might laugh at and the and the image of somebody. But you know, you, you start looking at um, positive representations of of older people, um, and certainly, you know, there are challenges that um, arise with with um, living a long life. And uh, a couple of movies that come to mind are um, The Father with, with Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman plays his daughter. And, you know, that whole dementia journey is focused in there. But really not having a, a senior in a movie just because um, to, to show that they've you know, kind of lost some of their abilities, but to show them being um, able to do things um, right through their life. Um, just like you know, Her Majesty the Queen, she functioned all the way um, through her life. And that's um, a really positive way of showing seniors. And in in uh, the fashion industry, we can think about, um, for, for example, British Vogue magazine, which in 2020, uh, right when the pandemic was starting, um, on the front cover of the paper was, uh, the magazine was uh, Judy Dench, the actress at 85 years of age. And then um, H&M has a collection of, of clothing from a 100-year-old um, um, fashionista, a lady by the name of Iris Apfel, who some of your listeners may be quite um, aware of. So there are some positive um, things going on in the media and in um, Hollywood and in, in fashion that is are representing seniors well. Right. But at the same time, we're also uh, drawn, and you touch on this in the piece, uh, you, you can go anywhere and find mm-hmm. ways to fight aging. And, and certainly the, the phrase he or she looks great for their age is something that's said. And we do highlight and put people on TV and in movies who don't look their age. Yeah, it, 
Exactly, Joel. So, and one of the things um, you can say um, if you if someone says that is you could say, well, she's always looked good for her age. Mm-hmm. Whatever age she has been at, she's always looked good. And one of the things that I'm you know, really um, I, I talk about when I um, speak about ageism is um, people like Justine Bateman, um, the actress from uh, Family Ties. Um, she has a book out called Face, and on the cover of the, of the book, she, she can see the wrinkles and those, those different um, characteristics on your face that sometimes um, have wrinkles based on, on uh, you know, years lived. And uh, she's not going to go under the knife. She's gonna, not going to put Botox in her skin. She's proud of how she looks, and if she doesn't get roles because of, of that appearance, um, she's okay with it. So I think we have to um, accept um, our aging and perhaps not um, hide it and even put maybe warning labels on products that, um, that might um, be chosen or purchased only because they make you look younger. Uh, what about other things, though, as far as people might say, but wait a minute, uh, I mean, I go to the gym because I want to stay, I want to stay muscular, I, I lift weights because I want my bone density to stay as good as it can. And it's, I mean, on the one hand, it is fighting aging, but it's also staying healthy. Well, exactly. And I think it's an individual choice. Whatever hair color you have, whatever, um, however you want to spend your free time, if you're able to exercise and able to eat um, healthy, sure, that's going to help you live a long, healthy life. And that's really what um, the UN's um, healthy um, or decade of healthy aging is all about, is is living you know a full life, living um, a healthy life and helping. That's probably the best way of, of combating um, aging itself is is looking at that. And uh, myself, I'm, I'm a marathon runner. And sure, um, you know, there's a certain regimen that um, you have to commit to in order to, to keep that going. And uh, it, you know, it does involve all those things that help you live a long and healthy life. So I think it's okay to do that so you feel good, but you're not necessarily trying to look um, half of your age necessarily. And what about accessibility and even things that might seem simple but would be a huge problem if you, say, have mobility issues or, or something like that? Just even basic accessibility uh, for people of any age. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Joel, is, is um, how are our cities um, friendly towards uh, people of all age, including um, disabilities? And that, that there's a whole valuing of people based on their abilities um, versus not being able. And you think about how, how hard is it just to go to the villages where we live and to access the services we need. It could be shopping, it could be banking. It could be public services, or even community centers, libraries, to making sure that everything around us is accessible, um, no matter what your abilities are. And I think that goes beyond the curb cuts, goes beyond um, the special um, uh, sounds that go that we hear when we're crossing the street for people who are visually impaired. We need to keep on that, that movement to make our our cities much more age friendly because um, we are ha- having that shift of, of demographic. Our country is getting grayer, um, no matter what, and we need to make sure that our whole city and um, our country is inclusive for everyone, um, especially for older people. All right. It was a very interesting read and an important conversation. Dan, thanks so much for joining us for talking more about this. Jill, anytime. Thank you.